I'd be grateful if you could open up your Bibles to uh, two places. Um, we're going to be in Exodus 20, uh, which in the brand spanking new church Bibles is on page 61. And um, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give one to you. You like it? Yeah? It's all right. Huh? Um, so um, page 61, Exodus 20. And page 816 is Matthew 11. They're the two places we're going to be reading from in a couple of moments. Exodus 20 is, of course, the the Ten Commandments, and the command to Sabbath is the fourth of those. And it always strikes me as a surprising thing that in amongst the articulation of God's, um, or the, the distilled will of God down into these Ten Commandments. There are many other commands in the Bible, but the distilled essence of what he wanted for his people, right up there, number four, was this command that you should rest. And it goes like this. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord God, or the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then over in Matthew 28, uh, the words of Jesus, he said, Uh, Sorry, Matthew 11, verse 28. He said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus spoke to those um, who he addressed as being um, who labor or work and are heavy laden. And uh, the question we need to consider just as we open the subject up is like, is, is simply who was he speaking to? What is he speaking to? What is it that he's, he's, he's addressing? And I think it's important to say this isn't, this isn't, these are not words that are directed to a select few. You could imagine, obviously, that within a crowd like this, within any gathering, there are some of us who are, who are overworkers by any measure, you know, first in the office, last leaving at night, um, people who have just got that unbelievable drive. And certainly, and then you've got your younger sibling, right? And certainly in my family, that was always the, the, the thing, like the youngest brother, you know, what is he doing with his life type thing? I mean, he came good in the end, but you have that spectrum of people, don't you? And you think, is he only talking to the people who are really hardworking? And the answer is not that. And, and we need to just sort of uncover a little bit. What does he mean when he speaks to those who labor and are heavy laden? I think I want to say at the outset, he's speaking to all of us. He's speaking to a universal experience, the weariness of soul that comes about uh, through life. And, it, and one great reason for this, the first reason that we just have to articulate, is of course just the realities, the gritty realities of living in a broken world. It's right there at the earliest pages of the Bible that the problem of the world is diagnosed as, as being 
fractured and crumbling and broken because of the consequences of sin and how the sin and wickedness of humankind has rippled out into the universe and brought about the fragmenting of, of, of all things. We feel it in our bodies. We feel it in our work. And it's there in the curse in Genesis 3 that by the sweat of your brow, you'll, you'll farm the land. We feel it in sickness. We feel it in in the sufferings that we go through, we feel it in the, the breaking down of the ecological, ecological systems of this world, all kinds of ways. Just life is tough. And if you've ever been through seasons where things have been hard, you'll know that weariness. Whether because you're, you're going through challenges in your work or you're going through, um, you're going through sufferings that are, are acute or afflicting you in a particular way. It can it can make you feel a deep weariness of soul. And you can feel, as Bilbo says in, in The Lord of the Rings, how when he's been carrying the weight of the ring for too long, it's like he feels stretched thin. And I think that that's something that, um, that, that anyone can, can experience in life just because life is tough and, uh, and things are not as they ought to be. And it's certainly true at that level. But I think that what Jesus had in mind when he spoke to us and said, spoke to those who labor and are heavy laden, I think he was actually addressing something a little bit more, a little bit more personal than that. That has to do with what I would describe as soul stress. The Greek word for soul is the word suki, from which we get words like psychological. And I think that when we think about the psychological impact of living in sinful flesh, and, if, and feeling the weight of our own brokenness, then we're getting close to what Jesus is talking about when he speaks to those who labor and are heavy laden. There's a sense in which you feel that restlessness of spirit and that it's hard to arrive at that place of contentment and of peace because there is this unstoppable, uh, unstoppable um, kind of fire inside and this kind of churning inside and all this kind of activity of heart and mind. That's those who labor and are heavy laden. And those are those to whom Jesus speaks, I believe. And it seems to me that this, this often gives birth to a, all kinds of different ways of expressing itself in our lives. There are those who feel no peace. There are those who, are, who have a strong drive for recognition Maybe you, that you feel that you go through life wanting to be seen, wanting recognition. It may be that you, you, you wrestle with anger. You don't even necessarily know why you're angry. You're just conscious that you're angry. It may be that you feel a sense of, of failure. A lot of people carry that constantly with them, the sense that they failed or are failing, or the desire for acceptance. Whatever it is, we feel it in different ways, but it all is this thing that Jesus is describing here when he speaks of those who labor and are heavy, laden. Come to me, he says, you who labor and heavy laden. Is there any one of us who is accepted from that call? I don't think so. It applies to every single one of us. Now, this universal experience then of this restlessness of soul gives birth to different kinds of reactions within us. There are those who, let me just lift a, lift a few of them. There are those who, who kind of respond to it with overactivity. And uh, it, the, one of the images that comes back to my mind whenever I think about this was when I was just about 13 years of age, something like that. 
My older brother James was 16, my younger brother Joshua was 10, and um, we went as a family on holiday to the Lake District, and just by uh, the side of uh, Derwent Water near Keswick, there is a series of hills that are called Cat Bells, and it's just a series of gently ascending peaks. We went for a walk as a family up those, those hills, and by the time we reached the end, my older brother, who's um, by any stretch is an overachiever and um, has dozens of letters after his name, um, it was even there when we were 16, we reached the last peak and he was like, this isn't good enough. And he, he rallied the younger brothers, myself and Joshua, and he, he, he marched us off on a, on a walk. We left mom and dad behind. They went back to the, the holiday cottage. And we walked to the next peak, which is where he aimed to, to take us. And then, I mean, he should have been a general in the army. He turned around and said, that's not far enough. And we went further. We went to the next peak. About three or four hours later, on our tiny little legs, we were exhausted. We were beaten. We were, we were broken by the drivenness of our older brother. And we ended up having to somehow get in contact with mom and dad to come and pick us up because we were too exhausted to get home. We had no idea where we were. And some people live their lives like that. It's always in pursuit of the next peak because where you are isn't good enough. And that's an expression of the restlessness that we're talking about. One of the most beautiful cameos that captures that sensation is in one of my favorite films of all time is Chariots of Fire, the story of the runner Eric Liddell who ran in the 1926 Paris Olympics. And really it tells the story of two men. There's Eric Diddle, the devout believer. And then there's Harold Abrahams, the the man who was his greatest competitor at the 100 meters race. And whether it's fictional or not, I'm not sure, but there's a little story, there's a little moment in the film where Harold Abrahams is, is, uh, is getting ready for his final in the Olympics when he's about to step out onto the 100-meter track. And he's there in the room preparing, and he's chatting to his friend Aubrey. And he says to Aubrey, you, Aubrey, are my most complete man. You're brave, compassionate, kind, a content man. That's your secret contentment. You can feel the envy that he, he doesn't have what he has. He says, I'm 24, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. He says, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? And he says he's scared. A lot of people go through life with that, that sensation that because of this lack of peace, this, this sense of laboring and being heavy laden, there's this overactivity. Then there are those who who find a way out through distraction. The way to escape that sense of drivenness is just through constant distraction. It can be something as simple as just whiling away the hours on Netflix every evening. But whatever it is, it's like you're kind of dampening that sense of drive and of the lack of peace and of contentment. Then there are those who actually do the very opposite to the overactive people. They do the opposite. They become underactive. And it's not necessarily that they're lazy, it's that they don't know how to rest, which is the irony. They look lazy, but really it's because they never really knew what true rest is. So they, they find, they give way to despair, and then they just check out of life. Whatever it is, and however it's expressed in your life, every one of us knows what this feels like to, be, to labor and to feel heavy laden under the weight of life, our brokenness, the drive, the hunger for something that we have not yet attained. Now... I think it's into this that the scriptures speak and speak with a striking contrast that the people of God were told, commanded 
that they must be a people of rest. Why? Why was this so important to God? That in there, in the Ten Commandments, only the fourth one, there is this command that you must be, of all people on earth, you must be a people of rest. And I want to answer that question with you because I think if you understand the importance of this, you'll understand why we have to pursue and enjoy this rest with everything we have. Let me give you three reasons. I want to show you how rest is about worship, how rest is about freedom, and ultimately that rest is about the gospel. Firstly, then, that rest is about worship, and worship is also about rest. I think it's clear that that's the case, that at the heart of God's command to rest is the call to be worshipers, partly in the fact that it was there in the fourth command, and the first table of the commandments, the first five commandments, are all about devotion to God. But it's also there in the words that God uses. He says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then in the next line, he says that the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. Which means, of course, when you think about this for a second, that the day was not just a gift to them, but they were giving their day to God. That's what the call was. That's what the command was. That's what the heart of it is about. If you get this and you understand one of the key elements of what it means to be a people of rest, what does it mean then to make a day holy? What does it mean to set aside a day in the week where you say this day is holy to God? Now, it doesn't mean that it's the one day in the week when you're not going to sin. That's a good idea to do that, but really the whole of life, you know, anyway. It's not that. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that it's It's a day when you're meant to avoid pleasure. Tragically, many Christians have understood it that way, and they banned all kinds of enjoyment on the Sabbath. We looked at it with great suspicion. You're having a little bit too much fun, given that today is holy. And of course, that has a lot more to do with other ancient religions than anything to do with what the Bible says about God and his ways and what it means to be devoted to him. It doesn't mean to say a day is holy doesn't mean that you can't have fun. And nor does it mean that that day is, is set aside purely for spiritual activities. Like we're meant to, you know, the, the image, it's not really like this these days, but back when I was young and even before that, the family used to put on their special Sunday clothes and you had to adopt a pious kind of stance and a, and a pious expression and you engage in spiritual activities and you don't do anything else. You're not allowed to watch any TV, you can't play any sport because it's only set aside for spiritual activities. And I say that's absolute rubbish because the Bible says that all of life is spiritual. Everything is concerned with the things of God, every single thing you do. It doesn't mean that. What does it mean then to say that the day is holy? And what does this have to do with the idea that it's that at its heart, rest and worship are bound together. And I'll, I'll give you a few words to give you hooks on which to understand this. They are consecration, calibration, and celebration. Consecration means this. When God called his people and said, listen, this is a day in the week that is holy to me. He was calling them to a renewed the rhythm of consecration, which means of setting aside themselves for God. Now, this, I think this helps, this makes a lot more sense when you think about the way that God's commands concerning money. The Bible is, 
is, it shows all through the scriptures that God calls us to, to be generous toward him. And one of the ways, the patterns in which that's true is in giving the tithe, which is a tenth of your income, back to God. Is it because God is only worthy of a tenth? Is it because that only a tenth is his? And the answer is absolutely not. The reason a Christian gives a tenth of their money to God is a way of saying, all of it is yours, God, and all of it comes from you. Therefore, my consecration of this tenth to you is the expression and the acknowledgement that everything I have is yours. And this is exactly how you could think of it when it comes to time. The reason a believer rests for it in any, in, during the week, in significant moments in the week, in God's presence, but also for a day in the week, is to say, all of my time is yours, God. And therefore, it's of no, it is not a problem to give you a day in which I am conscious of your presence. It's amazing when you read the book of Revelation that right at the start of the book of Revelation, John, just before he has his vision, he says that he was on the island of Patmos and he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, John was a spiritual man all of the time. But his habit of giving aside a day of rest, of consecrating himself to God, to be in the spirit, allowed the spiritual nature of his life to, to, to be pervasive. His whole life was affected by his living in the spirit in this way. Consecration is one way you can think of it. Another way you can think of it, and the call to to give your time to God in rest, is through this word calibration. To calibrate something means to reset it to an objective standard. You can think about this with your, your scales, the ones you stand on at home in order to check how heavy you are. Let's say you get up one morning after Christmas, And you step on the scales and you're like, wow, this is extraordinary. I'm 15 kilos lighter. How on earth did this happen? And the answer, of course, is it didn't. The scales are broken. And there's a sense in which our lives can become like that. That when we are not living um, and devoting ourselves to God in conscious moments, the ordinary toll of life means that you accumulate bad habits, bad attitudes, bad motives. Guilt because of things you've done, things you've neglected. Life takes its toll on you. And what's needed in the life of the Christian is a moment to come back to God and be recalibrated around Him. To remember what holiness is. To remember His love again. To be in His presence. A believer who who, who struggles to give... To rest is, is, is on a fast road towards spiritual ruin. Without that rhythm of resting with God, your life crumbles and eventually crashes. I've witnessed this, ministered to people who've suffered in this way and struggled in this way. It's about calibration. You're called, you're commanded to rest because if you don't, you'll die. Spiritually. Another word we can use is the word celebration. Now, this is the most surprising aspect of this. I love this. When God said to his people, set aside a day in the week and make it holy to me. A lot of you, as I've said, will picture a day in which is marked by an austere, frugal simplicity and piety that is devoid of all pleasure and enjoyment with a sharp 
expression, frown on your face and a devotion to God that is sincere and grim. And actually, when you read the Bible, what you discover is that holy days did not look like that at all. There were perhaps moments that looked like that when there was God's people were called to significant moments of repentance, but that was not the norm. One of the clearest examples of this, that actually a holy day, a day dedicated to God, was much more about celebration. One of the most beautiful examples of this is in the book of Nehemiah. And God has been doing a great work among his people to restore them to himself. Because they were backslidden, they were wandering away from God. And he calls them back. And they have experienced this deep spiritual renewal in which their lives are, are summoned and drawn back to him in a profound way. And Nehemiah addresses them. And says, this day is holy to the Lord your God. And you should prick up your ears because that's what it says about the Sabbath day. So what does it mean when he says, this day is holy to the Lord your God? What does a day like that look like? And then he goes on and says this. Go your way. Eat the fat. And drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to, the Lord, to our Lord. And don't be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, if I can put it like this, biblical worship is not just about gathering for singing, teaching, prayer, as vital as those things are. Biblical worship is about the celebration of God's goodness. And one of the ways you do that is, is through feasting. I think I could put it to you like this, that although many Christians think that holiness is equal to austerity, and scarcity, and frugality. The God of the Bible never has those words attached to him or his nature or his name. He is lavish. And it seems to me a lot of Christians would know a much deeper, more holy walk with God if they just knew how to enjoy his good gifts. Without guilt. Without excess, of course, but... In such a way that it's infused with gratitude. The Christian vision of rest then and of Sabbath as a way of, of guiding your life, of, of rhythm to institute, is one of feasting. You feast spiritually, you feast relationally, and you feast physically. Plenty of meat. Lots of good wine and beer. And ultimately, laughter and celebration, all to the glory of God. Worship. A lot of you would know a rejuvenation of your spiritual life if you just knew how to worship God in this way. How to enjoy his presence and come back into his presence in such a way that your spirit and soul is restored in the ways I've been describing. Rest is about worship. Worship is about rest. Here's the second thing. Rest is also about freedom. And freedom is about rest. Now, I want to just read to you um, from the, the parallel uh, passage in Deuteronomy 5, which is the, the other place in which the Ten Commandments are recorded and uh, are worded with some slight variants. And it says in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 15, when he's giving the command for the Sabbath day, he says, You shall remember, now listen carefully, He says, observe the Sabbath day. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. 
And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What's he saying? He's saying this. The reason that you must rest is because unless you rest, you are not enjoying the freedom that God has purchased for you. Now, the problem that I think God was addressing there in this command was the fact that even though God's people, by definition, are a people who've been brought out of slavery and into freedom, which of course was true of the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land, but is also the picture of what the Christian life is. You were a slave to sin. You were a slave to your own desires. And then God purchased your freedom through the blood of Christ and brought you into a state of freedom in which you are called sons of God. The great danger when you're free is that you forget and you start to act like a slave again. And there are many reasons for this. We can think about the expectations of the world. And it seems to me that the endless drive of a city like this is infectious. It gets into you, doesn't it? Shapes the way you think about what, how life ought to be lived. It's obvious to me that so many people act like slaves in, in, some, in some senses. Working for employers who expect them to be available at all times of day, every day of the week. And offering that freely to their employer. As though that's normal. Or appropriate. Enslaved to debt. To the endless cycles of, 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 of spending in order to gratify desires. And of course this kind of slavery pulls you back into, metaphorically speaking, into Egypt. God's people were called into a place of the liberation, then of the enjoyment. The, 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 the privilege of being able to stop your work is the privilege of the free. The word Sabbath means stop. And God commanded his people to be a people who were capable of stopping. Because they don't buy into the narratives and the drive of the world in which we live, in which all people are slaves to idols of all kinds. But rather they say, we know we serve the living God. And God's kingdom is a kingdom of freedom. Another thing that can drive you and call you back into slavery, of course, is, your, is the expectations that arise from within your own heart. And I think about the hidden drivers that are almost like slave drivers, but that are, that are inside you. The desire to achieve the desire to make your mark, ambitions, perfectionism, self-criticism. And how these things can, can constantly be like nagging and pushing and whipping you into, into, into more and more activity so that you end up exhausted in the ways that Christ described. You labor and are heavy laden. And it's not the enjoyment of freedom, is it? I think another thing here to add to... You know, the expectations of the world and the things that arise from within ourselves, of course, probably the most significant of them all is our imagined expectations, of what, our imagined view of what God expects of us. That so often people are, they experience this drivenness because they're serving a God of their imagination who is more like a slave driver than a father. 
and whose expectations are impossible to please. And so out of that comes guilt and drivenness and all kinds of ugly things. What I'm trying to help you understand, friend, is that just as the Israelites are called into this place of enjoying freedom so that they could stop, so they could Sabbath, because everything was a gift from God, the believer also needs to know that experience. If you can't rest, it's, it's like you're, you're still living in Egypt. And the slave drivers might be invisible things, but they're just as real and just as brutal and just as tyrannical. And they drive you in all kinds of ugly ways. And it reveals itself in, in interesting ways in our lives. It reveals itself in your own sense of heaviness and stress and the burdens that you carry. When you, when you, are, when you are stressed, that is a symptom and you need to understand, it's, it's not a case of just dealing with stress. It's a case of understanding the, the, what the symptom points to, the sickness that lies underneath it. It also expresses itself in the way you treat other people. A person who lives, as it were, back in Egypt is going to be a brutal person to some extent. Treating others unkindly, laying heavy burdens on others because you can hardly bear them yourself. The way you express your faith will be similar. You'll be a legalistic person, a person who feels the frown of God rather than the smile of God, and who then also becomes judgmental towards others. That will be the characteristic flavor, tenor, temperature of your spiritual life. When you know rest, on the other hand, you're able to say, I've nothing to prove because God has made me free. I have only his goodness to enjoy. I love how this is expressed in um, Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, which is an extraordinary book about work. But he says, anyone who cannot obey God's command to observe the Sabbath is a slave, even a self-imposed one. Your own heart or a materialistic culture or an exploitative organization or all of the above will be abusing you if you don't have the ability to be disciplined in your practice of Sabbath. Sabbath is therefore a declaration of our freedom. It means you're not a slave. Not to your culture's expectations, your family's hopes, your medical school's demands, not even to your own insecurities. When a Christian fails to enjoy and to walk in the goodness of God in terms of the freedom that Christ has purchased for us, you suffer and the people around you suffer. But when, on the other hand, you obediently walk in the rest that God gives to you. Blessing pours out from your life. I love how, I don't know if you noticed this, but in, the, in Exodus 20 where the Sabbath command was given, it says, on that day you shall not do any work, or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. In other words, the enjoyment of the freedom that God's given us spills out of you in blessing to everybody around you. You know what those people are like. People who who sense that they're living under the favor of God, who are not driven 
and striving and anxious and guilty all of the time, but rather are basking under the love of the Father. And their presence blesses others. Just think about this in terms of our witness also. I think that there are a few things in our context more damaging to the witness of a believer than our inability to enjoy the freedom that God's given to us. If you're just as driven, just as stressed, just as insecure, just as desiring to prove yourself as everyone else in this city, what has Christ done for you? Will be the question on people's minds. But when in the goodness of God, your life enjoys but also exudes this declaration of the freedom Christ has brought you into. Freedom from sin, freedom from shame, freedom from all of the guilt and all of the striving and all of the mess of our brokenness because he's made you whole. That is an attractive quality. Rest is about freedom. Now let me bring you to a final point. Rest is also about the grace of the gospel. The problem, of course, is that merely giving a command to rest is not necessarily good enough, is it? Because even if you were to stop, as the word Sabbath means, to just stop your work, it's not so easy to stop your mind, to stop your heart. Rest is not always something that you can just step into. And I think part of the reason is that underneath in our hearts we have this this default understanding that we have to earn our rest. This nagging sense of unworthiness and incompleteness. So that rest isn't always restful as a result, is it? Now, the answer that I want to point you to comes, of course, in these verses in Matthew 11. Where Jesus, let me read them to you again. He says, come to me. I mean, just reading these verses verses does my soul good. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. So my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, there's a sense in which we need to understand what Jesus is saying here, because on the face of it, it looks like a paradox. He says, I will give you rest for those who come under my yoke, which, is a, which was a, an instrument of work. What does he mean when he says, if you come and work with me, you'll experience rest? How can you work and rest at the same time? And the answer, of course, has to do with what he means by his yoke. I think we can th- think of this negatively when we understand the way that Jesus criticized the Pharisees. The Pharisees were men who themselves understood God as, through the lens of of wanting to please him by their holy works. And they were extraordinarily devout men. Gave themselves without hesitation to every act of obedience, way and beyond what the law even required to make sure that they didn't perchance break any one of the laws. 
And Jesus reserved his fiercest criticisms for them. And one of the things he said about them was this. In in, uh, Matthew 23, he says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. He says, in other words, the religion that they teach is all about making you feel weighed down with the obligations of the law. And it may be the case that for many Christians, functionally, that's exactly how they experience their Christian faith. I am stooped, I am weighed down, I am burdened by the obligations of the law. And Jesus said, that's not it. When Jesus called us to come under his yoke, which on the face of it sounds like a new way of being drawn into a relationship of work, You've got to understand, of course, what the yoke was. The yoke being this wooden beam that was laid across the shoulders of two animals paired up to plow a field. And the the Bible shows us how Christ, in his extraordinary faithfulness to the Father, his matchless purity and holiness, his righteous life, his death on the cross, how he has borne the burden of that yoke upon his shoulders so that to be matched with him is to be an unfair relationship in which he does all the work and you get all the rest. All of your sin transferred to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. All of his righteousness transferred to you by the gift of imputation. That he declares you just, that he declares you righteous through the statement of of his grace over you. So when Jesus says, come under my yoke, he's saying, come under this perfect and unfair exchange in which all of the striving melts away because you're given the gift of righteousness. And I'll take your sin off you. I'll take the guilt off you. I'll take the shame off you. I'll take the inadequacy and the sense of failure. I'll take it all off you. I'll take away the condemnation. I'm taking it all off you. The work then that's involved in being under this yoke is simply the determination to believe and to keep on believing this gospel. For some of you, that's something you have to do for the first time, and I'd encourage you to do so even tonight. When Jesus said, come to me, it's an invitation, but it's also a command. And the heart of the Christian faith is the acknowledgement that unless I come to Jesus, I'm hopeless. He invites you to come to him. But the Christian is also someone who hears those words as a perpetual command. Because my tendency is to chafe against the yoke and to try and walk off and do my own thing. And what I need to do is understand that I have to come back to Jesus and, and keep in step with him. I have to keep putting my my shame at his feet and receiving his righteousness. How else will I enjoy the grace of God? How else will I enjoy the liberty of heart and of conscience that allows me not to be labor and to to be 
not to be labored and heavy laden. I think this is a challenge for all of us to accept because we are all infected with pride. And pride says, I want to do it myself. You, know, you imagine if I was to give a gift of my son, to my son on Christmas Day of Lego, and uh, that night when he's gone to bed, I unwrap the thing and build it and then present it to him fully built the next morning. Do you think he'd be happy? He'd probably be really annoyed with me. He'd be like, the half, half the fun is the sense of accomplishment in doing it myself. In a sense, we're a bit like, we're petulant like that toward Jesus. That we want to build something for ourselves. We want to, we want to present to God our righteousness. And that explains so much of the drive in our hearts, the hidden drivers, that inability to receive the grace of God as a gift, quite apart from any deserving aspect of your being. I want to encourage you then. We're at the start of a year, and I think that years present opportunities for excitement but there are also daunting moments aren't there when you think what's to come and all the things you want to do with your life and all the ways you need to to work harder Christ is inviting you to him he's saying listen to enjoy a close walk with God in worship to enjoy the freedom that Christ has purchased for you and most of all to rest under the grace of God it is vital that you learn to rest. I want to, um, I want to just lead us in prayer. I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine in just a moment or two. As we eat, as we drink, I want to encourage you to come back to the Lord and to say to Him the ways in which you have, you've been acting like the slave. Or you've had a wrong conception of the love of God. I want to encourage you to come back to the Father and repent of those things. But also to say, Lord, I want to enjoy your good gifts. I want to enjoy the joy of being under your favor. In worship. In freedom. With the grace of God over my life. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father God. We recognize in the image of the person who is laboring and who is heavy laden. We recognize that too often, far too often, that is an accurate description of the way we feel. And Lord, we we bring that to you as a confession. Because we know, Lord, that that's rooted in our inability to to enjoy you, to believe your gospel. Lord, we don't want to add condemnation to stress, to guilt, to whatever else we're feeling. We want to bring it to you as a confession so that we can be free, so that we can walk under your favor. So that, Lord, in, in the enjoyment of rest, in, our, in, the day, in the day-to-day when we pray and worship you and also in the rhythm of the week as we set aside time for you. Lord, in the enjoyment of that, our rest would allow all of our work and all the stresses and strains of life to be instead characterized by joy, by willing obedience to you, 
by the pleasure of doing work under the favor of the Father. And I pray, Father God, that we be a people who are not mirroring this broken culture and this broken city, so compelled by hidden idols like success, like materialism. But rather, Lord, we would live our lives mirroring the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, grateful for everything that you've done for us and so completely untouched by the agendas of this world. Living lives that preach the gospel. We ask this in your precious name, Lord. Amen.